Good morning and welcome to uh, Through the Book of Revelation with me, your host, Chris Wickland. Hope you're all well out there. Okay, so today it's a little bit early in the morning and I've got a lot to do over the next couple of weeks. So I'm just going to try and, uh, on my little dictaphone here, record the whole of Revelation chapter 15. I thought I'd do it all in one part because it's quite a small chapter and we get through it quite quickly. It would make no sense to do two like 10 minute sections. So I'm just going to do an extended section today. So we're now coming into the final part of the book of Revelation where the final acts of God's wrath are being poured out upon the world. Chapter 15 announces the seven angels who have the seven plagues, which are the last of God's judgments. So chapters 16, 17 and 18 are the outpouring and conclusion of God's wrath in the seven bowls that is poured out upon the unrighteous. Then from chapter 19, Jesus returns to earth. In chapter 20, Satan is put into the pit for the destruction of Christ, uh, sorry, for the duration of Christ's millennial reign. The dead in Christ are raised. Chapter 21 is primarily about the new heaven and the new earth. And chapter 22 gives us a brief snapshot of life on the new earth and then concludes. Now, for those who have followed this series so far, well done. We are now coming into the final stretch, the final lap before Jesus returns. Revelation 15 verse 1. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvellous, seven angels who had seven plagues, which are the last, because in them the wrath of God is finished. We now come to the last seven bowls of God's wrath. This then concludes God's judgment upon the earth before Jesus finally returns for Israel, the church, and rules and reigns from Mount Zion. Uh, When I said Israel, the church, I meant Israel, comma, the church, because Israel and the church are in some respects slightly different. I'm talking to natural Israel and the church (coughs) as separate things. Uh, And then the two shall become one at the end of the age. When Jesus returns, the age of man is complete. I know I've just actually said some things that might open me up to some some theological questioning there. Um, I'm just trying to keep it simple. I know if anyone, uh, a messianic, sorry, if a Jew becomes, um, believes in Yeshua, Jesus today, he becomes a messianic Jew. You know, he's part of, um, we're a part of them. They're a part of us. I, I don't want to get into the theology of that right now. But basically at the end of days, Israel and the church, finally, the destiny of those two come together. When Jesus returns, the age of man is complete and then the Messianic millennial age will commence. The number of man in Hebrew is six, for man was made on the sixth day. Thus, at the end of the six thousandth year of the earth, the age of man will be concluded and then begins the thousand year Sabbath in the seventh thousandth year. And this Sabbath rest period is known as the millennial reign of Christ or the messianic reign. After these seven bowls are poured out, God's wrath is finally finished upon the earth. Now, it's interesting to note in Leviticus 26, 21, it says, If then you act with hostility against me and are unwilling to obey me, I will increase the plague on you seven times according to your sins. I need to remember, uh, remind everyone here that the saints are not appointed to suffer the wrath of God. So the saints will not suffer these judgments, just as Israel didn't suffer the afflictions which were poured out upon the Egyptians in the book of Exodus. Revelation 9 verse 4 says, They were told not to hurt the grass of the earth, nor any green thing, nor any tree, but only the men who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. 
So we also need to be aware from Revelation 15:1 that God's anger is not forever. Isaiah 57:16, for I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry, for the spirit would grow faint before me, and the breath of those whom I have made. Psalm 103 verse 9, he will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. One other point regarding the millennial reign of the mess or the messianic Sabbath rest, as it's known, is that it is not a Christian concept. The idea of the millennial reign is not something that Christians came up with. The idea of the Messiah returning and bringing a Sabbath rest to the earth is actually a Jewish idea. The Babylonian Talmud, which was compiled in around AD 400, contains some ideas and thoughts about the Messianic Sabbath. Please note that although the Talmud was compiled in the late 300s to early 400s, it was a compilation of oral rabbinical thought that had been around for many hundreds of years. The last seven plagues to be poured out complete God's judgments upon the earth and spell out 777. The seven seals, the seven trumpets and the seven bowls of God's wrath. The 777 is in judgment to the 666 system of the beast system, which is a political system, six, an economic system, six, and a religious system, six. A demonic man-made system, which is a blasphemy to the true kingdom system of God. Jesus is king not man. Jesus has given us a kingdom system of economics. Jesus has given us access to the one true God to worship. This is the 777 system, which is in stark contrast to that of the beasts. The 777 series of punishments is God's personal death blow to the futility of man and his wicked ways. I believe that these seven last plagues mentioned in Revelation 15 are linked to the seven bowls of wrath which are mentioned in Revelation 16. My reasoning for this is that in chapter 15 verse 1 it states that the seven plagues are the last and final judgments of the wrath of God. In chapter 16 the bowls themselves contain the plagues which are poured out. Plagues such as malignant sores, rivers and seas turning to blood, scorching with fire, huge earthquakes etc. Revelation 5 verse 2, And I saw something like a sea of glass mixed with fire, and those who had been victorious over the beast and his image, and the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, holding harps of God. The sea of glass is to do with heaven. This description has already came up many times throughout this commentary. And these who are the, and those who are the victorious saints who have been victorious against the Antichrist. <clears throat> now one may ask, how is dying any form of victory? Well, simply put, to say no to the Antichrist and his system to enable one to live would have been infuriating to the Antichrist. To Jesus, he would see them as heroes of the kingdom of heaven. When his bride goes toe to toe with the Antichrist and chooses death instead of bowing to a false god, it fills Jesus with love and pride, but also anger at the 666 system that has hurt his beloved so much. <clears throat> Much of God's wrath poured out at this time is because of what the Antichrist system does to his church and the people of Israel. It is interesting to note that <clears throat> excuse me, there are three things the martyred saints are commended for in Revelation 15.2. They were victorious over the beast, his image, and the number of his name, i.e. the mark of the beast. So they were victorious over the beast, one, his image, two, and the number of his name, three, i.e. the mark of the beast. Again, we have... <clears throat> The mystery of 666, the beast is a man possessed by Satan, but still nevertheless a man. 
6, for 6 is the number of man. His image, the saints never bowed down to him or conceded to his miraculous powers. This is the religious system of the beast. This is the next 6. And the saints overcame the number of his name, i.e. they refused to not take his mark and thus were denied access to the economic system of the beast. Another 6. <coughs> the beast, the man, the 6, the image of man to worship man, 6, the mark of the beast, the man-made economic system, 6. Thus they overcame the 666 system and were victorious, even when it cost them their lives, friends and family. These saints are heroes in the kingdom of heaven. Revelation 15.3 And they sang the song of Moses, the bondservant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvellous are your works, O Lord God, the Almighty, righteous and true, for all your ways, King of the nations. Now it's interesting how the martyred saints sing the song of Moses, which is a song recorded in the book of Exodus, chapter 15, verses 1 to 18, and in Deuteronomy 32, verses 1 to 43. In the days of Egypt, God punished her with many um, of the same plagues, uh, which he is about to pour out again from Revelation chapter 16. So basically, back in the days of Egypt, the, the, the punishments that came on Egypt are very similar that's what's about to come out in chapter 16. So when we look at that next uh, next time, the fact that the saints sing the song of Moses means that they have died or as certain Greek passages state exodus into their promised land and are no longer slaves to men, gods and their cruel oppressors. The link back to the original exodus is very striking. And I've always believed that the original exodus story links powerfully into the book of Revelation. Again, in the Exodus story, there was no rapture. The Old Testament saints saw the judgments of God upon the Egypt or upon the Egyptians whilst they were spared from it. A time of deliverance for Israel came after they witnessed the destruction of Egypt's religious, political and economic system, i.e. the 666 system. The Song of Moses is often recited and sung during the Sabbath liturgy and the traditional churches such as Catholic, Anglican and Orthodox sing them at various times of the year also. This song of the Lamb in Revelation 15.3 seems to be an adaption of Old Testament liturgical hymns, which again many churches sing today at baptisms, matins and vespers. Now I've stated many times throughout this commentary that there is a lot of doctrine in the book of Revelation, a lot more than one may, ex may necessarily expect. So let's take a look at this hymn of praise and see what it shows us. The hymn starts with, the line, great and marvellous are your works, O Lord God, the Almighty. The works the hymn is referring to is everything from the creation of the universe to his powerful acts and deeds throughout history. God is known as Almighty, that is to say, the all-powerful, all-sufficient and all-knowing God. And he is the king of all kings, the highest of the high, the greatest of the great. Righteous and true are your ways, king of the nations. God's ways refers to his commandments as set down in the Torah, the prophets, and through the teachings of Jesus and the apostles. His ways refer not just to righteousness, but holiness and sacred culture. The title King of the Nations is interesting because Jesus is not just the King of the Jews, but King of the Gentiles as well. Some other translations say King of the Ages, again referring to God being King of all kings and Lord of all lords. His power dominion and greatness have never been in question and never will be. He is the king of the universe, despite the futile antics of Satan and the Antichrist. 
Revelation 15, 4. Who will not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy, for all the nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Who will not fear and glorify your name? The scriptures are clear. Every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that he is God. Philippians 2, 10 to 11, Romans 14, 11 and Isaiah 45, 23. All saved and unsaved alike, when they finally see God face to face, they shall all fall prostrate and bow before him. Even Satan will bow because God is so wonderful to behold, so beyond anything we could ever think or imagine. For all the nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Now this is a quote from Psalm 86 verse 9 and is a hint also from Isaiah 66 23b which says all mankind will come to bow down before me says the Lord. As Gentiles we probably don't really understand the significance of these verses because Gentiles are from the nations i.e. non-Jewish. There are many similar such passages throughout the Old Testament that reveal the universal plan of God's salvation that starts with the Jews and then reaches out to the Goyim, the Gentiles, and then ironically ends with the Jews. The Jewish faith gives us the Jewish Messiah who saves and redeems first the Jewish people and then the Gentiles and then back to the Jewish people. For the first shall be last and the last shall be first. As Gentiles, we need reminding from time to time that Jesus is Jewish, his ancestry is Jewish, he is the promised Messiah, king of the lineage of David. If Jesus rose from the dead, sorry, uh, yeah, if Jesus rose from the dead with the marks of the nails on his hands and spear mark in his side, it stands to reason his circumcision still stands. Jesus didn't rise from the dead a Gentile. He was and ever shall be Jewish, and when he returns, he will be the king of the Jews, ruling the world from Mount Zion in Jerusalem in Israel as the Jewish king. Jesus is Jewish, period. We Gentile believers need to be reminded of that from time to time. Gentiles coming uh, to love and to worship God is a prophesied promised event of the Old Testament. Salvation comes from the Jews, John 4.22. We need to be eternally kind and grateful to the Jewish people for allowing and entrusting and leading us to their Jewish Messiah. Now, although many Jews have rejected Jesus, Yeshua, yet he has not rejected his people. For at the fullness of the time of the Gentiles, all Israel will be saved. See Romans 11, 25 to 26. Now, I want you to understand this mystery, dear brothers. I'll read the scripture. So that you will not feel proud of yourselves. Some of the people of Israel have hard hearts, but this will last only until the full number of the Gentiles comes to Christ. And so all Israel will be saved. As the scriptures say, the one who rescues will come from Jerusalem and he will turn Israel again from ungodliness. Revelation 15, 5. After these things, I looked and the temple of the tabernacle of testimony in heaven was opened. Now, some people may have noticed a glaring contradiction in this verse, a contradiction of translation and the temple of the tabernacle. Well, what is it? Which is it? A temple or is it a tabernacle? Surely it can't be both, right? (laughs) For those who spotted the contradiction, well done. The word temple is actually wrongly interpreted. The word should be sanctuary. Indeed, the actual word temple is only used a few times in the New Testament. Most of the time, the word for sanctuary is used instead. The sanctuary being the holy and most holy 
section of the temple or tabernacle. In one sense, I'm splitting hairs here because the actual temple building itself was only the sanctuary, either holy place and the most holy place. So it doesn't really matter. But we may think that the temple denotes the whole structure, including the outer courtyard, etc. Um, and that may be the case. But in our verse in Revelation, the focus is upon the holy and most holy section of the tabernacle opening. Interestingly, the word tabernacle or tent only appears in this verse in the whole book of Revelation. Thus, the earthly tabernacle built by Moses is an actual copy of the heavenly one. Hebrews 8.5 says, They, the priests, serve a sanctuary that is a copy and shadow of what is in heaven. That is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle, see to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. When we understand uh, this, we can then see that the word temple is really a wrong translation and that it is the sanctuary, the holy and most holy section of the tent, the tabernacle, that makes better grammatical sense and meaning to the text here. We also know that uh, has to be the inner sanctuary as verse 8 tells us the sanctuary, not the temple, was filled with the smoke of the glory of God. Thus the final plagues about to be unleashed upon the earth come from God's ultimate holiness in the most holy place. Verse 6, And the seven angels who had the seven plagues came out of the temple, clothed in linen, clean and bright, and girded around their chest with golden sashes. Now I've mentioned this before, but it's clear here that angels are acting as priests before God, of which Jesus is the high priest. So in the Old Testament, the Jewish high priest prophetically represented Jesus and his high priesthood role, and the regular priests in the temple and tabernacle mirrored the ministry of the angelic priesthood in heaven. Now some may have reservations on this point, yet Revelation is so replete of priestly ministry by angels holding incense, censers, worship, liturgy, etc. that I cannot see any theological objections to the concept of angels being priests before God. If we do have objections, it's more likely through bad theology. We don't think or that we don't think angels are that special or that important, yet they clearly are. Otherwise, why are they so powerful and have such important roles and functions? Revelation 15:7. Then one of the four living creatures uh, gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. The four living creatures here are the four seraphim who constantly cry out, "Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty." See Isaiah 6:3 and Revelation 4:8. These are the four angels who appear in the book of Ezekiel with wheels within wheels and eyes along the rims, and also in Isaiah who anoint the prophet. Um, Isaiah's lips with hot coals from the altar which altar the heavenly one again showing and revealing the priestly function of the angels see Ezekiel chapter 1 and Isaiah chapter 6 this then reveals some conundrums for some charismatic evangelical churches who are opposed to incense and liturgy in a worship service thinking them to be old testament and devoid of reality and uh, thus nothing more than religious nonsense nonsense and claptrap however I, as a charismatic Christian, strongly object to that notion because it's clear that heaven is still running a priesthood system with incense and liturgy and repetition of cycles. And the book of Revelation is so strong on this issue. So for Christians who take umbrage against denominations of having priests, liturgy and incense, I would say be careful in your judgments. You might just find out that one day maybe how wrong 
you probably were, especially when you go to glory and witness the holy tabernacle of heaven with the priesthood of angels. And I would also point out that the churches who do use liturgy in their services follow a yearly cycle and readings and verses that come from all of the Bible and especially sections of the book of Revelation. Why? Because these denominations are trying to imitate the heavenly pattern. If you think that's a problem, then we have to look closer to home at the modern day house of prayer movement, which is a charismatic evangelical uh, construct. It is itself trying to model the heavenly pattern, hence the phrase harp and bowl, which is referring to angels on harps worshipping and the bowls full of prayers and incense. So whether it's cool and trendy like IHOP, house of prayer or more Catholic, Orthodox and Anglican, please note They are all trying to imitate the heavenly pattern, not trying to resurrect an Old Testament priesthood, as some like to suggest. The golden bowls of wrath in verse 7 are holy utensils of the sacred order of worship in the heavenly tabernacle, and these bowls coming out of the most holy place signify the rightness and most holiness of the judgments about to be poured out upon the earth. Revelation 15.8 And the temple, the sanctuary, was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one was able to enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Okay, the picture of smoke and fire and the glory of God are often linked to his Shekinah, uh, his manifest glory. Most people pronounce that as Shekinah, but uh, in Hebrew it's pronounced as Shekinah, the K-H being a like that, Shekinah, his manifest glory, and his mighty holiness in respect to his law, his Torah, and his justice. So his glory and his, his Shekinah, his mighty holiness, it's all linked together, and his law and his justice. So for example, in Exodus 19, 18, it says, Now Mount Sinai was all in smoke, because the Lord descended upon it in fire, and its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked violently. This is all linked with God's law and his holiness. Exodus 40 verses 34 to 35. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. 1 Kings 8, 10 to 11. It happened that when the priests came from the holy place, the cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. We have here the same picture in Revelation 15 verse 8. No one was able to enter the heavenly sanctuary because of the manifest glory and power of God until his will in heaven was done upon the earth, i.e. the pouring out of the last plagues upon the earth. The beast of the earth has insulted God's holy, holy, holy name and his Shekinah and all those living with him in heaven and all his saints on the earth and in heaven. But now it's time for payback to the beast, his system, and all who take his mark of the religion of the beast. For God's fury, the ancient day of the Lord is about to commence. This time is very personal, very personal, and God will not allow any more priestly access to his heavenly sanctuary until his fury is exacted upon the earth. Here the saints on the earth may rejoice For their God shall do valiantly. It is he who shall tread down their enemies. The day of the Lord, God's wrath to the evildoers and God's vindication of his saints in Israel has finally come. Amen. God bless you. Until next time. See you soon. Bye-bye.